Proactive Athletes is the premier place that empowers student athletes to overcome the challenges of college sports recruitment. Their unparalleled expertise and influential network will guide you towards realizing your fullest potential. At Proactive Athletes, they understand that each student athlete is unique, facing their own set of obstacles. That's why their dedicated team takes the time to comprehend your individual needs, providing a comprehensive hands-on approach tailored to your success. With their personalized attention and unwavering support, they ensure your satisfaction every step of the way. Through their vast network, they have successfully connected with over 2.3 million coaches, giving your child's profile the exposure it deserves. In fact, their student-athletes' profiles have been viewed by an astounding 716,000 coaches, solidifying their reputation as the go-to platform for recruitment. What sets them apart is their data-driven approach, allowing them to make informed decisions that result in better outcomes for their student-athletes. By harnessing the power of data, they maximize your child's chances of success as they embark on the next chapter of their athletic journey. Join the ranks of proactive athletes and unlock your true potential. Let them amplify your talent, connect you with coaches that want you but may not have known about you, and pave the way for your future success. Together, they will defy the odds and ensure that your dreams become a reality. Don't wait any longer. Get proactive in your child's recruitment process today by visiting proactiveathletes.com. And make sure you use Shark Effect 10 for 10% off. And so he said, Trey, the way you manage people is to manage their identities, to help them find the highest and best expression of who they're supposed to be in the world. And when you do that, some people are going to be involved with you, but some people are not. Some people are going to say, this is who I am now, and I have to go somewhere else to be that person. And you got to be okay with that. It's intercepted. Picked up by Alex Molden. Welcome to the Shark Effect. I'm your host, Alex Molden. I'm a former NFL veteran, and now I'm a leadership and personal development speaker and coach. In this podcast, you will hear inspirational and humorous stories from leaders of all walks of life, from current and former professional athletes, coaches, authors, experts, executives, and successful business owners. Discover how these leaders not only overcame obstacles, but also learned core principles that led to their success when leading others. So my guest this week is Trey Taylor. Trey is from Georgia. He is an author, he's a speaker, and he's a consultant. His book, A CEO Only Does Three Things, is wildly popular in the business world. And I end up meeting him from a good friend of mine, Tommy Breedlove, and we just kind of kicked it off. And he had a very interesting background and a background that was going one way for him, and then all of a sudden, tragedy happens. And he had to step into this CEO role. And he had guidance, and so much guidance that he saw the benefit that was happening for his company, and he ended up writing a book. And so he has a blueprint to, uh, to have success as a CEO. But the principles that you will learn can apply in any area of your life. So uh, have a listen. You're going to learn a lot. Trey, thank you for being a guest on the Shark Effect. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to have you on. want to uh, 
have you kind of opened up a little bit about what you're doing and it's something that that's really cool. And um, so I, I really just want to first kind of start off and kind of tell us about you. Where are you yeah, from, Alex. Trey? I appreciate that a lot. I live in uh, Georgia. I live halfway in between Orlando and Atlanta, a little call, town called uh, Valdosta, which is also called Wintersville. Valdosta has the winningest all-time uh, high school football programs. Uh, and ESPN several years ago said, we're going to find the town in the, in the country that has the most titles of any other town. And they figured it would be New York or Green Bay or something like that. And, and little Valdosta, Georgia, population 46,000 people, had more titles, more national titles uh, than any other town in the country. High school football, um, uh, college football, you know, Division II school here, um, uh, Valdosta State University, they win national championships like you just get them out of the vending machine. Uh, our our uh, high school volleyball program, girls volleyball programs, I mean, anything we play around here, we play to win on a national level, so. Wintersville. That's what we call it. Wintersville. <laughs> okay. Well, well, is it something in the water? Is it something like with the coaches? They all go to the same school or same university? Yeah, it must be. It's it's just a culture of, uh, you know, if there's not a lot to do, there's not a lot to distract you. You find something that you're interested in and then you play all out. And uh, it's a very good culture of, uh, of coaching and wanting to build each other up and being able to accept coaching as well, which is, as you know, is a big part of it. And uh, so, you know, it's a little bit of little slice of heaven over here as far as uh, winning goes. That's pretty cool. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing now. I know you have a book out and it's, uh, I want I want to hear a little bit about not just the book, but how you got started doing what you're doing. I'm going to let you explain what you, you know, what you're all about. Yeah, it's a little complicated. I, I run what we call a family office. So we have three generations of our family who have decided now to pool whatever resources we have and pull the wagon in the same direction instead of pulling uh, each for our own designs. And so uh, I'm the head of that family office. And that by default means I'm the head of a couple of businesses that we own. Number one is, a, uh, is an employee benefits insurance brokerage business. Number two is a coaching and performance business for executives. And then we have an investing arm where we invest in startups and commercial real estate and that sort of thing as well. And so I've had this book sort of sitting around in my head for a long time. And uh, so now I've brought it to market uh, in, um, in uh, November of 2020 was when we had our first copy hit the market. A mutual friend of ours, Tommy Breedlove, read that, said, uh, I think Alex would like to talk to you. And uh, so here we are today. The book is, um, is a little bit of a, a, a handbook. It's a little bit of a guidebook for CEOs, for, for the one person in charge. It's a guidebook. And, and Alex, what I figured out is when I came to be a CEO, I came in a very unique um, uh, but tragic circumstance. My dad passed away while he was on vacation. He was 52 years old. And he didn't have a succession plan because he was 52 years old. Who would have that? And uh, so I had to come back, uh, leave the life that I had established and come in and sort of run his business, take care of his obligations, family obligations, business obligations, that sort of thing. And thankfully, he left a good team because if it had all been on my shoulders, there wouldn't have been any story to write. But because he mm -hmm. left a good team, I was able I was given the luxury of being able to figure out what it was I was supposed to do all day. And what occurred to me 
was that the CEO's job is the only job without a job description. Mm. If you're the quarterback on a team, you know that you're supposed to drop back and throw for 30. If you're the CFO, you know you're supposed to um, uh, handle the numbers, make sure the profits are there at the end of the day, you know? If you're a window washer, you know that you're supposed to clean window from top to bottom, X amount of windows a day and that sort of thing. But the CEO is the only person that you don't have a job description. So what are they supposed to do all day? And so I was at a conference a couple of years ago and the speaker who was up after me, who I listened to and I thought was wonderful, uh, said our only moral imperative is to be the person that we needed when we were younger. And I thought that just sit on my shoulders. I, I, I thought about that for a long time. And I said to myself, you know, I, I do my charity work and I was involved in homeless shelter and all that kind of stuff. And those are good things to do. But none of that was being who I needed when I was younger because I didn't grow up homeless. You know, I grew up privileged. I didn't have that, that need as I was growing up. So what was I doing to, to sort of help a younger Trey? And, and it occurred to me that the one thing I didn't have when I was, when I was coming up was a, was a handbook, a guidebook on how do you be a CEO. So that's what I wrote. Mm, that's interesting. Now, your path, I want to hear about before you kind of took over, you know, after your, you know, tragic sure. loss of your father, what were you designed to do? What were you doing before then? Yeah, my dad had told me at a pretty young age, like, don't do what I do for a living. You know, go go to a place. He, you know, he was a, a sales guy. He ran a sales organization. He said, go to a place in your career where you're firing clients, but they're not firing you. You know, go be a professional, right? Go be a doctor, mm -hmm. go be a lawyer or something like that. Well, you know, my science scores in high school and all said that uh, doctor school was not going to be for me, but, uh, <laughs> but law school was it. So I went and became a, a lawyer, um, uh, left that pretty, pretty as, almost as soon as I graduated and went into um, uh, startups. So I was one of the very early employees at a company that became WebMD, uh, was able to do okay. a lot of corporate development work. Um, you know, I managed their investors. We put big deals together. We would do a deal on a Monday. It would be on the front page of the paper on Tuesday, uh, those kinds of things. I was constantly in the background around the CFO, the CEO, watching how they did things. Um, I dropped out of that company into a, a venture capital firm where we made investments and those kinds of things. And then um, when 9-11 hit, the venture capital world just dried up, especially in Atlanta, Georgia. And so I had to go get a real job. And I went to work for a company called Earthlink, which was a nationwide ISP. Uh, that's how you got your dial up internet back in those days. And, mm -hmm. um, and I worked uh, venture capital relations for them and did some business development. And then the big break came. The president of um, AOL called and said, I am told by two people that I highly respect that you're the man for the job. And the job is we need to divest ourselves of a billion dollars worth of assets that we've acquired over 10 years. We don't need them anymore. We're not utilizing them correctly. And we think you're the one to take them out, figure out what the real value is and work with our teams to get that gone. We're going to, we're going to give you everything you want in order to come and do that. We want you to move from Atlanta to Virginia from, you know, Northern Virginia to do that for us. And how I was they excited. Find you? I'm, I'm I how'd they find you? I had two friends 
that had both taken positions with AOL that worked closely with him. And he would sit around in the meetings and sort of complain that I can't get from here to here because I need capital and I need uh, attention. And I don't have attention because people are worried about these companies that we shouldn't really own in the first place. And I don't have capital because the capital's tied up in those businesses and we can't bring it all to work together. And so we need to get rid of those things. And he, he made that comment two or three times and two or three people, friends of mine said, well, Trey Taylor's the one to do that. Now, why they thought that, I don't really know. <laughs> I never have asked them, but they said it enough that they didn't, that AOL didn't hire a recruiter, nothing like that. They simply, he called me and, and made an appointment for a call and we had that call and that's what he told me. And he said, what would you do? And I said, well, I'm, you know, off the top of my head, I'd do X, Y, and Z. And he said, that's exactly what I think too. When can you start? And that's how it worked. Okay. So then, you know, I called him back and I said, look, I can't, it was a terrible time in real estate. I can't sell my house in Atlanta. He said, what is it worth? And I said, well, I think it's worth this. He said, we'll buy it. We'll buy it. We'll hold it. We'll sell it to somebody. We don't care. Get your moving truck on the way. <laughs> so the moving truck was on the way. The, the guy had called me in a morning on a Saturday. We, we are leaving Virginia right now to come get your stuff. Please have it ready. And uh, here they come. And Paul was my mom saying, you was in the hospital in Vegas. This is not looking good. So I called the moving truck back and I said, don't come. Let me, let me check this out and make sure everything's going to turn out okay. And, and of course it didn't, but, you know, life has a way of progressing anyway. Mm, wow. And then all of a sudden you're kind of taken from what you, you know, what was going to be your path and you made an adjustment. You That's made right. an adjustment for, you know, for, for the family and for, for you, but how did that, like, how did that go? Like, did you just, were you all, all on board or were you kind of like, man, can somebody else do this? Well, we were all in shock anyway. Mm -hmm. And um, my dad was a big figure, you know, when he was in the room, everybody knew he was in the room. He was that kind of personality that, that everybody wanted to be around and, you know, and to listen to and, and to hear the stories and the jokes and that kind of stuff. And so there was a, a, a total lack of oxygen in the room now. Now, now he's passed away. It, it was so young that we were all in, uh, in total shock around it. And so I came in and, and my brother worked in the business. We had other family members who worked in the business, all of whom had experiences that I didn't have but none of whom had ever run a successful uh, business that way. They had all been parts of a business, but not the top position in the business. And the more we analyzed and the more we looked it over, uh, I sat down with the, my mom and my brother, the two major shareholders, and I said, um, look, I, I think I have to come in and be the CEO here, at least to get the ship stabilized, to get the contracts you know, finished that need to be finished and the sales done that need to be set, you know, sold and those kinds of things. And, um, and so that was a tough conversation to have. Uh, they, they, they agreed, but wanted to know what that would look like, you know? And, um, and then I had to have a very honest conversation with myself. And that conversation with myself was I'm on the precipice here. My, my dream job is on, is on its way. They want me so bad and it's a job I can do well. I can make a lot of money at it. I can make a big name for myself. Um, I had a, a young lady that I was ready to get engaged to, 
she was not going to move to Valdosta, Georgia. So I had to have a, a mirror conversation with myself and say, who, who are you? You know, and, and what does that mean for the choices you make in your life? And um, uh, Alex, you'll know what I mean when I say I was spoiled. My daddy never told me no. I mean, I was his oldest boy. And if I came and said, dad, I want to do this, he would do what was necessary to make that happen. And that was a big conversation in that mirror when I said, you know, I always knew I had obligations because of that, because, because we were given a lot and a lot should be required. I thought it would be required on my time frame. You know, that when I got ready, I would give back. Maybe I'd help them find a nursing home or something like that. Instead, you know, life chose its own time frame. And I, I had to step up and say, either I'm the person that I was raised to be or I'm somebody different. I wanted, I wanted to honor my dad in that place. And I wanted to be that man. So that's why I took the job. Mm. Mm. So when you took that job, did you have like a, um, people surrounding you that can help you you know, because this is your first chance at being a CEO. Like, how did you how did you know what to do? Did you have people that could that can help you, or did you read books and and kind of, or, or did you just kind of figured it out? Yeah, I think a little bit of uh, of everything. So, uh, I'm a firm believer that life is ready to teach you what you are ready to learn. And that first year in the business, what I needed to learn was the business. And I had 15 or 20 of, of quantifiably the best people in the business, the highest producing salespeople, highest earning, every metric that you could run, these were the best people in the world. If you had to learn from anybody in the world, that was who to learn from. So for that first 12 months, I, I, I made the announcement, we're not going to change a thing in this business. My only question to anybody bringing me uh, a question, my, my response is going to be, what would my dad have done? And we're going to agree with what that was. And that's what we're going to do because he was running a successful business. There was no reason for me to change the business the first year. He also had set one production goal, one sales goal. And I said, it doesn't matter what happens this year. We're going to hit that goal no matter what. Um, and, and he passed January the 31st. Uh, and so we were one month down on the goal already. And we hit that goal by the end of the year. We hit it on December the 28th. We hit that mm. goal. And those are the only two things that I said to myself that year. I didn't grieve. I barely, uh, you know, barely had shed a tear or anything of that nature. I didn't have time. I worked every day from 7.30 to 7.30, learning everything I could possibly learn. I did massive data analysis so that when somebody would come in and say, I think this is the case, I could say, well, the data says this and validates what you say. The data says this and says that you're wrong. We could have a different conversation. And that got people's respect pretty quick as well. So that was the first thing that I did. Uh, that was the first year. After that, I said, okay, now if, it's, if I'm responsible for the business, then it's my business. And, uh, and I report to the shareholders. They happen to be family members. And, um, and then I, I began to learn everything I could learn about being the CEO of a business. And again, life is ready when you are. And so I had mentors that came out of nowhere and would give me small pieces of advice, large pieces of advice, take me under their wing, bring me to meet other people, uh, that sort of thing. And so that's what I did for the next uh, three years was just really season myself around executives that knew what to focus on, how to do things. I joined uh, masterminds, I joined 
boards of advisors, everything I could put together to, to just really learn what that position was supposed to be. Because I knew how to run the business. Now I needed to, to know how, or I knew how to do the business. Now I need to know how to run the business. And so that's what I did for the next three years. You know, I never thought about having a podcast. Like I've only listened to maybe five or six podcasts in my life. And I end up stumbling across Jeannie and Michelle in their podcast accelerator. And it's a six week course, but it helped me understand what podcasting is all about. Like it's not as scary as I thought it would be. And it was really simple once you got a system. And so they helped me out tremendously. And right now, they're going to be holding another podcast accelerator group um, in March. But I suggest you check out their their two minute quiz. And so you can download it. You can check it out on my on the um, on the show notes and it will tell you if you're a good fit and what your podcast should be about. If you want to raise your platform. If you want more people to to listen and hear what you have to say, and, and if it's important, if you want to share it, then you got to get help. I thought that I had to do it all by myself, but with Jenny Michelle and the podcast Accelerated, it helped me to see the bigger picture and it simplified it, creating a podcast for me. So check it out and trust me, you'll be thinking. Okay, back to the show. Gotcha. And what type of um, character did you have to turn into or did you already have that to run a successful business? Like how many people were were in the business when you first started? We had um, 19 people in the business at that point. 19. So did you have to did you have to be a better communicator? You have to start to, you know, uh, build relationships. Um, You know, I know. Yeah. So we've already talked about you kind of increasing your knowledge of being a, you know, being a CEO. But I'm interested to hear a little bit more about, you know, your those characteristics that you have to improve on. I was an attorney by training. Mm -hmm. I was um, a venture capitalist and very numbers oriented. And really thought that if I came in and said, here's how it's going to be, because this is what the law is or the numbers are, then everybody would say, oh, thank God Trey's here. He just told us how it's going to be. And now we're just going to fall right in with that. Well, in, in Alex, you know this already, but I didn't. People don't work that way. And I, I, I had to develop. And, I, and look, I'm the first to say, I'm not sure that I'm finished developing this, but I had to develop my EQ side, my emotional intelligence in the game. You know, that that I needed to listen to people. I needed to take their thoughts in. Um, um, I needed to whether somebody was right or wrong was less important than whether they were present and committed sometimes. And all of this was learning for me because this is not how I thought the world worked at all. It wasn't how the way my world worked beforehand. I was the lone wolf. The reason that this guy at AOL wanted me was because he wanted he knew I was a target missile. You know, he could put me on the path. I'd get everything out of the way and the deal would be done at the end of the day. Um, But if I'm trying to direct 19 other people to accomplish that same thing, 
you know, these people have choices as to where they can be. <laughs> you know, it's mm -hmm. not the army, right? They don't have to be there. They don't have to do what I'm going to say to do. And most of our people are commission driven salespeople, you know, and so uh, they determine the size of their paycheck and how hard they work and that sort of thing. So it was a it was a tremendous learning for me. And, and I would not let you talk to my team today because I don't want to hear what they have to say about that. But I think I'm <laughs> doing really good. Uh, but, uh, you know, they may not think I'm doing so good. But, uh, yeah, that's what it was all about was learning. How do you manage people? How do you get in the, in the heads of people and and help them see that what you're proposing is the best thing for all parties? Mm. And so did you have to have like one on one conversations and and kind of like see like what's the what's the big picture of what they want to get done? I did. And uh, and I had good mentors at this point. Uh, so at this point in my career, uh, I was introduced to a guy named Ron Willingham and Ron had written 12 New York Times bestsellers. He's the most famous person that you've never heard of. His uh, he wrote a book in the late 80s called Integrity Selling. And it was about, um, you know, not blowing up a sale, not uh, puffing it up and, you know, not tricking somebody with closing techniques and things like that. And I read that and I thought it was great. So I reached out to him and um, he had courses that you could buy and you would go through them in person and that kind of thing. He had two and a half million people go through his courses before he died. Wow. And they're still going through them today. Um, and so he came into my life at the right time where he showed me some magic. He showed me that uh, all people are created in three different dimensions. We have an intellectual dimension where we learn and, and process information and data and, and perceive you know, things in the world. We have an emotional dimension where we process our emotions and our feelings and we relate to other people and have rapport with them or not have rapport with them based on how they make us feel. And then at the deepest level, we have uh, what Ron called the I am dimension, but is this uh, identity. And we will act, unconsciously act, in association with what we think that identity should be, whether it's true or not true, whether it's good for us or not good for us. And so he said, Trey, the way you manage people is to manage their identities, to help them find the highest and best expression of who they're supposed to be in the world. And when you do that, some people are going to be involved with you, but some people are not. Some people are going to say, this is who I am now, and I have to go somewhere else to be that person. And you've got to be okay with that. And that's, mm. you know, that's, that's the core of our management philosophy and all of my investments today, everything is, can I see who a person is and who they want to be? And is there something I can do to help them be that person? And if I can do that, then surely we can cooperate on the economic side of things, because that's typically the easiest thing to understand. Mm, I love that. That's a, yeah, understanding like their identity. And a lot of yeah. us, we get caught up. So, you know, we get caught up into our identity becomes, or because of the job that we do, that becomes our identity. I know it, I know it did for me. I, sure. I just thought I was just a football player. And then when I stepped away and I wasn't playing football anymore, my identity was lost and I didn't, I was clueless on who I, on who I was and, and really what my purpose was. And we see it all the time, don't we? People who leave the, the NFL, they have that identity and they can't make that bridge over to being something else. It doesn't have to be something more, something less, just something else. We see this, I think the largest uh, undiagnosed uh, mental condition that happens in this country 
is uh, they call it empty nest syndrome, but it's when mom has done her job for 20 years and then the kids go off to college and nobody needs mom on a minute by minute basis, you know, and that sort of thing. And I've been mom for all this time. And now all of a sudden I'm not mom in the same way. And my identity has shifted. And where do I go? You see divorces happen. You see uh, breakdowns, depression, all that kind of stuff accompany those things. And we have to be aware of these things way in advance, way in advance. Yeah. And we have to, we have to manage, manage. It's not the right term. We have to love people through those kinds of transitions. Mm, that's man. See, that's what I'm talking about. Because when you start to look at things and if they have the same, it should have the same foundational principles. Like I just told you about like me and football, but then it's, it's the same thing that happens to empty nesters. And so it's like, man, what, how do we, how do we find our identity? How do we start that course or start the, um, you know, start thinking about what they or who they are. Yeah. So for me, you know, I pay very close attention to Ron's model and I, I envision it as a snowman, you know, the, the intellectual little ball up top, then the emotional ball, then the, then the bigger ball down on the bottom, which is, which is where all that identity happens. And what happens with, it, with that is when we have that identity or self image, when we, we have a picture in our mind of who we are, and we think everybody sees us that way. And we're, gonna, we're going to behave based on that picture in every situation. So I'm a CEO. And you know what? Every group I walk into, I still think I'm the CEO. And sometimes that makes some uh, rough transitions for me because I'm not the CEO of every organization in the world. You know? mm -hmm. But I have to be honest with myself. I have to be very much in conversation with myself as to what that self-image should be. Because the only way to change behavior is to change the image that we have of ourselves. Mm. And so in managing yeah. people, I'm constantly listening for the phrases that they start with, I am. In my interview process, I try to get them talking about what kind of person they are. And they will, they will reveal a, a wealth of information to you. The other thing is I try to create uh, expansion in that definition. So for example, I don't give gift cards. I don't believe in them, okay? 97% of gift cards or some high number like that are never cashed in, right? So the companies get the money, they never have to provide the service. Great, great thing for them. <laughs> but it does nothing, I don't give cash either. It does nothing for the capability of the person. So what do we give? We just had a little um, a three-year-old uh, born into the company family, you know? And for his three-year-old birthday, we gave him swimming lessons. They took him swimming every day and he learned how to hold his nose and how to float on his back and all of that kind of stuff. For the rest of his life, he will be a swimmer. I created in him by my gift, a definition of himself that nobody can take away. I created something in his I am. So now he can say to himself and to anybody that'll listen, I'm a good swimmer. And that'll be part of his self-definition for the rest of his life. That's how we have to do for each other. Mm, I love that illustration, man. That's, yeah, I like that. So tell me, what is one of the things that a CEO only does? I don't know if we have enough time to get through all three, but. <laughs> well, I, I'll tell you all three real quick. Okay. Uh, CEOs, they have to focus on three things because they're the only ones in the organization that have the responsibility and authority to make those three things happen in the perfect way, okay? Number one is culture. 
the, the CEO has to say, this is the sum total of who we are as a group of people. That's his job and his right to say. That's a collection of value statements. So we are this. It's just the I am statement, right? Mm -hmm. The second thing is um, people. The CEO has to set the agenda about who can be here on this journey with us. And we want to recruit the right ones and retain the right ones. And those that aren't the right ones, we also have to help them find another place where it's the right place for them to be. Number three, the CEO has to set the agenda around numbers. He, has, he or she has to say, this is how we know we are most effective. For some organizations, it's sales. For some organizations, it's downloads. For some organizations, uh, it's uh, you know pounds of lettuce harvested or something of that nature. It doesn't matter. But whatever the metrics are, the CEO is the one that has to set those metrics. Now, does he report them? Does he uh, you know, build Excel spreadsheets and that sort of thing? No, they probably have a CFO or some other people that are assigned to that. Does he physically recruit and retain all of the employees under the people section? No, they probably have an HR department that's good at that. Um, and, and, and does he do all the culture stuff? Large organizations now have chief culture officers, those kinds of things. The putting it into play, the implementation uh, of things is something that he or she can delegate to other people. But as far as being held responsible and being measured as to, as to their effectiveness, culture, people, and numbers. Mm, I like that. And that's something like I'm just thinking about, like we were off, uh, off camera, off air. We was talking about the Super Bowl, right? And I'm, and I'm thinking about, you know, Tampa Bay and them being able to pretty much control the whole game. And I look deeper I said, man, they brought over Tom Brady, who's who who is the GOAT. Mm -hmm. And it pains me to say that, but when you look at the data, that's that's the GOAT, right? So I look at that and going from just one position, right? The quarterback position, and you take out Winston and then you implement or you put in Tom Brady without any mini camps, barely little training camp. And it's, it, I mean, it's not amazing, but to see like the culture change and like who they are, they were, and from day one, they, they were a physical football team, not from day one, like, like in the Super Bowl, yeah. but I'm talking about from game one, yeah. it sounds like they knew their identity, like who they are. The, the coach knew their identity was able to express it that we are winners, right? And we recruit the best possible talent we can get to support that culture. And our numbers are gonna prove it. Now I'll leave for you to analyze whether that worked out or not. And I, and I happen to know coach didn't read my book. So he must've figured it out on his own, <laughs> but he figured it out. He figured it out. He did. Look at that. Okay, now what happens when you, um, there's a, a individual who comes into the, the company that maybe you didn't do as much due diligence, or maybe they change and they become like that, that uh, bad apple. Yeah. Then, then what? Yeah. So, um, you know, I look at this and I'm thinking about this a lot lately. Culture is not a, a, a static and fixed environment. 
it changes, but it should change slowly over time. It should always represent the highest and best commitment of people to, to values. And those values should be universal. They should be, they should be true whether somebody acts in accordance with them or not. They should still be true. But it should be dynamic. It should change over time. So in other words, if I can put it really bluntly, 15 years ago, we might have had uh, some hiring policies that, that would, would, would discriminate against women or something of that nature, right? And the culture should change and it should change over time to, to correct that oversight. That's a good example of that. People should be very high velocity in change. People should be moving up the organization. They should be moving out of the organization to the extent that they don't match up with the cultures and achieve the numbers of organizations, right? So people should be very high velocity. And, and we do see that, especially compared with 30 years ago. 30 years ago, you got a job at, at Home Depot selling hammers and you graduated, you know, and you finished out your career as the VP of hammers or something. You know, you had a career progression and, and you did that. Today, very different. And numbers should be uh, changing all of the time, right? We should be reporting against them all of the time. Uh, the goal should be fixed, but only for about a year, five-year period, that sort of thing. So when we find that somebody in the people section um, are not good fit with the culture, are not achieving the numbers, those kinds of things, uh, then we have to help that person go find a place where he or she is better suited to be successful. And uh, we do that too slowly, right? So we try to change our culture too fast. We try to change our numbers. We try to slow down our numbers so we can get them aced every time. And we don't fire or take separation of people or however you want to politically correct be about that. We don't do that fast enough with people. And um, yeah, I've been fired once in my life. And it was the worst thing that could have happened to me that day. And the best thing that could have happened to me in my life, because I was not a fit for the organization. I didn't believe in the culture. I was there for the money. You know, I, I was good at the job, but those things don't matter as much as being a committed team player. And I was not a committed team player and deserved to be fired. And I have said that to the CEO who fired me mm. <laughs> many years later. And he knew it, of course. But, but the point is that you have to help those people find somewhere where they're going to be more successful. Mm. Yeah, that's great. So what happens, or I'm going to say what happens, but let's say like we have a, um, an individual who's a former athlete, and let's say they just finished up with school, and they're trying to get into the workplace, and they... They, uh, they don't understand a whole bunch about who they are right now, but they understand teamwork. They understand the, um, what, what leadership is and how to kind of fall in line. What, do you, what can you tell them to help them have success when, when they start to enter into the job market? Is there any like little, little tips you can be able to give? I mean, the, the tactical tips that I would give anybody, and I've said this to many people before, is sit down and write the 10 things that you value most in interacting with people, right? What are those 10 things? Do you value loyalty? Is that something that's very important to you? Write that down. Do you value integrity and honesty? Do you value uh, promptness? You know, if somebody owes me money, they're going to pay me quick. Or if somebody says they're going to show up, they're going to show up. Whatever those things are, just be, you know, mirror conversations. Have that conversation with the man in the mirror. 
and, and figure that out. And then all of your job hunt is less about you telling people what you can do for them and figuring out if they have an environment that you can flourish in. Because Alex, we are a nation, a world of super learners today. We can learn anything by, you know, four hour uh, YouTube video or something of that nature. I read a thing on, um, on the Humans of New York where the woman, of, of, she was a Filipino woman and she was cleaning hotel rooms in New York and she hated it. And she went and saw a job posting for a bookkeeper and said, I can, I'm, I'm a bookkeeper and I'll do it for very cheap for you. And the guy said, okay, you start on Monday. And she went home that weekend and got on YouTube and watched YouTube videos about bookkeeping. She got the job every night. She'd go home and study. She'd make notes about what she didn't know during the day. And she got better and better and better and better until she was a bookkeeper. She formed an intention in her I am and her identity that she was a bookkeeper and she acted on it. You know, that's, mm. that's what we got to do is because you can learn anything, but you can't choose any environment to learn it in. So if you, if you get yourself into the wrong place, that's a, that's a big deal. I had somebody that came and interviewed for us. The skill set was not a match. They left. They called me back two days later and said, I know you're not going to hire me because I don't have the skills that you're looking for. And I don't have a lot of money, but I want to work for a company like you described to me when we sat down, because I go through our values, talk deeply about who we are as a people and a culture. And she said, I want to be a part of what you're doing. And I said, okay, I'm going to make you an intern and you can come in 20 hours a week and you can work in the office and you can find something to do until we figure out what to do for you. And I'm not going to pay you because I don't have any money to pay people that aren't ready to go and, and, and solving problems for the business. But every problem you solve, I'll pay you for that. And she worked for us for six weeks and she eventually became our head of a, of a, a group sales assistant. So she was pulling all the salespeople in, getting all the things that they didn't do well. She would put together because she could figure all of that out. That was a, a assistant position we had to invent because we didn't know we needed it. And she excelled at it. And when she left us, she left us with tears in her eyes. And she said, y'all help me grow up because she didn't know mm -hmm. who she was before that. She took that position and now she makes way more than we paid her for that cross country. She makes a lot more money now because she was able to do that, but she came into the culture. She bought into the culture. Mm, I love that. That's great. Absolutely. Well, Trey, how can my, how can my listeners get more of you? I know. So once your book, where can they get your book at? Yeah, the book is on Amazon. It's on Barnes and Noble get it on your Kindle. We're working on an audible release right now. The book is called A CEO Only Does Three Things, Finding Your Focus in the C-Suite. It is good for brand new CEOs. And what I am told is it is good for people that have been in the job and have been burnt out a little bit as well. I've had quite a few people message me on LinkedIn saying, uh, this book has refreshed my soul when I go back to work and people are really doing some good work with it there. So that's good. Uh, you can find me at uh, www.trinity-blue.com. That's where I do my uh, executive coaching, um, strategic planning for clients, um, all that kind of stuff, consulting that people can hire us uh, to come in and help them out with. And, um, and speaking and too, I, right? Yeah. And speaking, speaking I do my speaking from okay. there. Yeah, absolutely. You can book speaker uh, gigs there. 
Uh, also, I'm all over Clubhouse. Alex, we talked about that. We still got to get you on Clubhouse. Uh, I, I finally got on after, oh, yeah, you after did? that conversation. Well, yeah, I got on. Oh, I got to find you. I didn't know you were on there. Okay, I'm on yeah. Clubhouse all the time so people can find me there. And uh, yeah, I just love all this interaction. So happy to love it. Ha- happy to help wherever we can. Okay. Well, um, social media. I'm going to have all this stuff that we're talking yeah. about. I'm going to have it on the show notes, but um, I want, you know, for people to be able to, to also yeah. listen. We do it all. I got an Instagram page, Facebook page, Twitter page, um, LinkedIn. I do a lot of stuff on LinkedIn. Uh, so okay. you can find me Trey Taylor on uh, any of those. Okay. Well, Trey, hey, thank you so much for being a guest. You've opened up um, my mind and then others, I'm sure, of not just about like the CEO, but like the culture that you that you want to have, that you want to be a part of. And then also, man, those conver- or the conversation that we had about identity. I think that's so important for people um, to be able to, to, to know that what you do is not who you are. That's right. Right. So, man, thank you so much. I greatly appreciate it. I want you to, I definitely want to have you on again, Trey. Um, but yeah, man, thanks a lot Let's for being a, a guest. We can talk some uh, masterminding and uh, those kinds of things next time. We'll touch on all that stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Good. My thanks man. for having me, Alex. Always a good to see you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Shark Effect podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please share it with a friend. And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcast player. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback for us, you can reach me directly at thesharkeffect.com. Thanks for listening. It's here, finally. My book, The Ultimate Playbook for High Achievement. You can get it on Amazon in the uh, paper paperback version or you can get it on kindle and who this book is an in, intentionally created for is for those who are looking to, to transition what whether you was an athlete or an executive or a successful entrepreneur or whatever if you're looking to transition into something different this book can help you I break it down, I lay down the foundation of who you want to be. I have a chapter in there that breaks down and boils down leadership, which is influence. And you gotta understand these 10 influencers that can help you with decision-making, that can help you with influencing others. And how are you influenced? I have chapters in there that really breaks down my system of assignment, alignment, and adjustment. Recognizing the power of your environments is a chapter. Developing your own procedures, creating relationship roadmaps, using adversity to your advantage, right? Because we all go through tough times, but how do you flip it? How do you use it to power you, okay? And then developing your own standards. So these are things that can help anybody, not just, not just athletes. Now, there's some stories in there you know, that covers topics that that resonate with athletes. But I think overall, this book can help um, anyone who is looking to transition into becoming successful in something new, something different. Okay, so make sure check it out. Amazon, the ultimate playbook for high achievement.